so, Father, I pray that you would help us understand who must get stoned and why it is that we all feel so alone. In Jesus' name, I pray that you'd help us to preach, Father, through the power of your Spirit. Amen. John uh, chapter 2, or chapter 8, verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. Now, you remember the temple was a huge building made out of stones where Israel, the Lord's bride, was to commune with the Lord, her husband. So early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. Now, you're all probably kind of familiar with this story, but you may not realize what an incredibly difficult test this was, challenging test for Jesus. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but in fact to fulfill them, for our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the scribes and the Pharisees throw this woman at Jesus' feet and say, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Blamo! Now, in that little video, they depict a dude tied to a, a, a tree because I suppose even the folks at Comedy Central, you know, have their limits. And Jesus stoning a woman would be just like over the line. And yet maybe that's what should have happened, right? I mean, Jesus was without sin. He, he did come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the law does say that certain things deserve stoning. In fact, we all say that certain things deserve stoning some form of, of stoning. You know, when the great prophet Moses dictated the law in the wilderness, they didn't have prison cells and guns and lethal injections or even trees on which they could hang people or crucify people, but they had stones. And for certain crimes, the community was to pick up stones and then just stone a person to death. And in truth, we all kind of hold stones and we hurl them, don't we, in some, in some form. It's actually how we hold our society together. We identify a person or a problem, confine it or, or kill it. In fact, um, maybe we should do that right now. I mean, who do you think should be stoned? In other words, what are the worst sins? Now, don't say all sins are just the same, because remember that to Pilate, Jesus said, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So they're not all just the same. So what are some, what are some big ones? Anybody? Murder? Yeah, I knew murder would be one. Maybe, what else? What? 
Rape? Yeah, rape, sexual, sexual abuse of children, something like that. Well, what would be like some minor sins? Stealing? White lies? The myth of Santa Claus, yeah, something like that, okay? So, so we've got all these sins, and then we need to rank them. So imagine that, like, the top of our ranking is right here, like six feet. This would be, like, the worst sin, and then down, like, an inch off the floor would be the least worst sin. So um, what would be up here at the top, the very top? Genocide, yeah, that's, that's a good one. What about, um, what about delivering Jesus up for crucifixion? Because that's one he mentioned, right? Like the Judas kind of thing. That, I mean, that would, seems to me that would be pretty high. What else would be pretty high? Murder, the ones we mentioned, right? Okay, so then down at the bottom would be stuff like, like what? Like speeding or maybe double-knit polyester or something like that, right? And then in, in the middle might be something like prostitution, right? Adultery or prostitution. Or how about the social injustice that leads people into prostitution? Or, or maybe that's kind of right here. But you, but you rank all of those, all of those sins. And so you can picture your ranking. Now, at what threshold, what level do you throw the stone? Or at least, you know, incarcerate people. And if you say at no level, I would say, well, you probably haven't thought this through very well, and you secretly wish to stone people like me right now that press the question. I mean, we all think at some level there's got to be some recompense, right, some accountability, and yet my question does make us a bit nervous. If you're paying attention, you might have thought to yourself, well, gosh, wasn't it my sin that delivered Jesus up for crucifixion? Yeah, that ought to make you nervous. And maybe you thought, well, didn't Paul say that he was the chief, the foremost of all sinners? I mean, that's worse than, than Judas. Yeah, that ought to make you nervous. It's not Judas, it's, it's Paul. That'll make you nervous in kind of a, a new and different kind of way. And what if we all don't agree on our, on our ranking? You know, to commit adultery is a willful choice that destroys families, and there's a good chance that this woman was, was a prostitute. So where would you rank prostitution or adultery? And where would you rank something like the systemic, misogynistic, sexist, and economic abuse of women that leads to prostitution. I mean, where's the guy that committed adultery, and why is it all men that's now trying this, this woman? I'm guessing that some of you with a more conservative leaning might rank adultery higher than some, you know, vague systemic injustice. And I bet some of you with more liberal leaning would think just the opposite. You think it's, it's those guys that should have been stoned. So what do we do at times like this? When, when we can't agree. Well, according to the highly influential sociologist, I think he was French, Rene Girard, we do what we've been doing actually this whole time, and that is we look for scapegoats. More scapegoats. He argues that early in human history, frightened, confused, and lonely people discovered that they could unite by finding a common enemy, most preferably one that's easily overpowered, identified, and, and killed. The term scapegoat, you know, is a reference to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16 when the high priest would confess all the sins of the nation of Israel over two goats. One goat was sacrificed to the Lord and one was released into the wilderness, not as a sacrifice, but as the scapegoat. Girard argues that this is how the social structures of this world are formed, come into existence, are formed and maintained. To unify a group, the leader naturally identifies a scapegoat. 
and blames all the problems of the group on that scapegoat. And so by accusing the scapegoat of evil, the group is convinced that they, in fact, are, are good. We're good. We're good now. You've known this since you were a child, right? Ever since you first got the knowledge of good and evil, you started to figure this out. I mean, you knew in junior high that you were part of the in-group when you and your friends could laugh about someone that was outside the group. That's your scapegoat. This game, the, the blame game, is the modus operandi of kingdoms, governments, and even what we call churches. I mean, I know this. I've been part of this business for a long time, but I know that if I want to grow a church big and fast, it's, it's easiest to do so by finding a well-defined, tangible, and convenient scapegoat. For churches, that's easiest to do by finding a group of sinners just you know, beyond the agreed-upon stoning threshold. Preferably a sin that the folks in your church can easily resist. So if your church is mostly old people, it's those wild parties the young people throw, you know. And if you're young, it's the, the way they cord their money for retirement or something. You want a sin that, that your folks easily resist and can clearly identify in others. And then by preaching that those others are evil, I can convince my folks that we're good and we belong and heaven must be awesome because those old people, the, those other people, the scapegoats won't be there. In other words, we win because others have lost. Game over. And yet it isn't over because the problems haven't really been, been solved. And so you have to keep finding scapegoats, and people don't always agree on the scapegoat, which puts you right back where you started, only smaller. It's my experience that most United Methodists would stone the men that threw the woman at the feet of Jesus in the temple before they'd stone the woman that committed adultery. It's also my experience that most Southern Baptists would stone the woman that made the choice to wreck a marriage and accuse the Methodists of using social justice issues to excuse sexual sin. You realize that the kingdoms of this world, the principalities and powers of this world, they just feed on your fleshly desire to find a scapegoat. They get power and money that way. CNN and Fox News both feed on your outrage. It benefits CNN to tap into your outrage over sins of systemic discrimination. So you watch and think, yeah, I'm with these guys because systemic discrimination is evil. So let's go, let's go stone those, those, those damn Pharisees over at Fox News. And it benefits Fox News to tap into your outrage over the lack of personal responsibility that leads to things like abortion. So yeah, let's go stone those tax, collect tax collectors, liberals, tax collectors and sinners over at CNN. You know, it's obvious that our nation, our world is falling apart. And it's obvious that we comfort ourselves by finding others to blame, to accuse but isn't it also obvious that if we do this enough, each of us will end up alone? Because if I think this is the game, I will play to win. I'll play to win until everyone else has lost, and then I'll find myself utterly alone. I will have gained the world and forfeited my soul. Right? But shouldn't somebody get stoned, right? I mean, we got to do something about, uh, about darkness, lies, death, and evil. The command to stone offenders appears seven times in the law of Moses. Number one, Exodus 19. If anyone touched the holy mountain, they were to be stoned. Seems a bit vague and dangerous to me since God then told the Israelites to approach the mountain. Ah. Leviticus 20, if you sacrifice a child to Molech, you were to be stoned. Seems reasonable. 
Leviticus 24, a guy gets in a, a, a half Egyptian guy, gets in a, in a fight with an Israelite guy, curses God, and God prescribes stoning. Seems a little culturally insensitive to, to me. Number four, number 15, a guy picks up stones, uh, sticks on the Sabbath. Someone sees him, and God prescribes stoning. Number five, Deuteronomy 13, if someone suggests worshiping another god, there to be stoned. So next time someone says, isn't that Lady Gaga just divine? You just turn around and walk away. Deuteronomy 21, number six, if a son is stubborn and rebellious, and I quote, he's to be stoned. But over and over, we will read in, 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 in the prophets that... Uh, all of Israel is stubborn and rebellious. My people are stubbornly rebellious, says God through Jeremiah. Ezekiel claims that Jerusalem is worse than Sodom. And then number, number I don't have enough fingers on this hand. Number seven, Deuteronomy 22, if a man marries a young woman and fails to find the evidence of her virginity like in the morning, and no one is able to produce the evidence of virginity, then all the men of the village are to stone her to death. That's horrifying. And even more so when the prophets reveal that the Lord is betrothed to Jerusalem, who has been an unfaithful bride. And so everyone in Jerusalem deserves to be stoned. Except Jesus, the bridegroom. Well, when we feel blame, we naturally look for someone else to blame. And then we derive comfort by blaming others together. And so by the time of Jesus, it appears that most people wouldn't even risk saying the name of the Lord for fear that it might be blasphemy. No, where were we? Look, I don't think it ought to be blasphemy. Just saying Jehovah. <laughs> shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of Jehovah, the Lord, Yahweh, Yehovah, shall be saved. Says the Lord through the prophet Joel. So, so what, is, what is God doing? <laughs> Trying to get us all killed? To be saved, you must say Jehovah or Yahweh, but to say it, Say it, and you, you, might get, you might get stoned. You know, I used to hate reading the Old Testament. I really did, because it seemed that according to the law of Moses, almost everyone deserved to get stoned. And I hate reading the, the prophets, for it seemed that almost everyone did get stoned or would get stoned according to the prophets. And I have been taught that after they were stoned, they would be endlessly tortured by God in a place called hell. About 20 years ago, I began to read the prophets. I went back and started reading the prophets, daring to actually believe what they said, and I discovered that it wasn't, it wasn't most who would be stoned. It was all. The prophets would prophesy that God would destroy all the surrounding nations, for instance, but then they would also prophesy that uh, the same thing would happen to Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. In seminary, it seemed that most scholars kind of taught that this was like hyperbole, and so all really means most, and the point is that God's just really pissed, and you ought to try a whole lot harder, and so, of course, we all feel blamed. And we all look for someone else to blame. So we won't be blamed. And then we find ourselves feeling more and more and more and more 
alone. You know, I think if we're honest with the text, what the prophets preach is not some, but all. And here are just some examples, okay? So I'm going to put them up on the screen. I'm going to read them to you. Hosea chapter 1, verse 6. Call her, call Israel, uh, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whew. Ezekiel chapter 3, the people of Israel have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have, I have consumed them in my anger. Habakkuk 2, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Isaiah 66, last verse in Isaiah, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Now, I just went through Isaiah years ago looking for that word, wherever it was, to see who were the men that had rebelled or transgressed against him, and it turned out to be everyone. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Zephaniah 3, listen closely. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's intense. But this is what I find so fascinating. If I believe it, kind of, well, I get super anxious. I begin to look for scapegoats, and I feel very, 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 very alone. And it's not good that the Adam is alone. But if I just believe it, that everybody must get stoned, I find that I relax, <laughs> and suddenly I don't feel so alone, and I realize that there's no one in particular that I would like to stone. Now, as far as we know, nobody smoked weed in first century Palestine. We don't know that, but it's pretty clear. But we do know that they often got drunk together. And as we noted a few weeks ago, this is why people often get drunk together today, so they would not feel so all alone. So they'd stop trying to win by making others lose. So at least for like a few hours, they'd stop exalting themselves by trying to humble other people and so agree to just all humble themselves together, you know, for at least a couple hours to get wasted together, just choose to lose together and for a moment no longer feel so all alone. We also noted that Scripture is very clear when it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We noted that Wine or pot can't really do the job that needs to get done. So God has something far more powerful and permanent. We, we also noted that through the prophets, God reveals that his judgment is, quote, a cup of staggering, that the whole world will be forced to drink. Jeremiah spells this all out in great detail in chapter 25. It's a cup and a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. It's wine that's blood and blood that's wine. It kills the ego and will humble all people. Oh, I would not feel so all alone. Everybody must get stoned. Back to John 8, verse 5. The scribes and Pharisees say, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Some have speculated that it was the sins of these men. I, I think it was probably the law and the prophets. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. And I love this, beginning with the older ones. Isn't that true? The older you get, the more you're kind of aware of your sin, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? See, that's a tough one. Did he stone the offender? Well, no. But maybe, yeah. He said, neither do I condemn you. So he didn't blame her, you know, as if she could have done differently, and yet he didn't let her off the hook. He said, go and sin no more. So he clearly acknowledged her sin and said, now stop doing that. It's like he separated her from her sin, stoned her sin, and freed her from herself. Like a sword. How'd he do that? And he didn't just do it for her, he seemed to do it for those men. He didn't stone them, but made them admit that they deserved to be stoned. They dropped their stones and thereby confessed that they were sinners. They were, in fact, unfaithful Israel. They were the whoring bride. They were the defiled temple. It's like he blamed them by not blaming them. <laughs> those, those Pharisees. Remember, he said to his disciples about the Pharisees, he said, they're blind. They're blind. You don't blame blind people. They're, they're, they're just blind. They know not what they're doing. It's like he condemned all of them by not condemning it's like he judged all of them by not judging. It's like he didn't stone anyone, but stoned everyone by not stoning anyone. It's like he didn't judge, but he is the judgment. The Gospel of John makes this abundantly clear. It's like he didn't stone anyone, but he is the stone by which everyone gets stoned. How does he do that? Last week we looked at three of the major prophets. Daniel is usually considered number four of the major prophets. Like Ezekiel, he's among the exiles in Babylon, but serving in the house of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, for Daniel is of the house and the lineage of King David. In chapter two of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and when his wise men can't reveal what the dream was nor interpret it, Nebuchadnezzar uh, plans to have them all killed until Daniel steps in and reveals the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar and then reveals its meaning, saying, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He then says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, what you saw was a great image. Its head was made of gold, and that's you. Its chest and arms were made of silver. It's the kingdom that follows you. And now we know that that's Persia or Medo-Persia. Its middle and thighs were bronze. It's the kingdom that follows the previous kingdom and rules all the land. That appears to be Greece under Alexander the Great. Remember, he conquered the known world. And its feet were iron mixed with clay, says Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar, having ten toes, and that looks like, like Rome. Scholars argue over the exact identity of the last two kingdoms. In chapter 7, they seem to be represented as four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and something else like a dragon with ten horns, which in the Revelation is pretty clearly Rome. Whatever the case, each of the kingdoms is built by men who unite their people by going to war and stoning scapegoats. Each kingdom is finite and so comes to an end, and Daniel describes the end that never ends, because it's not finite, it's infinite. It's not temporal, but eternal, and it's a stone. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut, Nebuchadnezzar. A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it stuck the Im struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. 
Remember, that's Rome. And broke them in pieces. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in, in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So literally, everybody gets stoned by one stone, not cut, not thrown by any human hand. All the kingdoms of this world then blow away like chaff, and the thing that remains is this stone that acts like a seed, for the stone grows. It's like a living stone. It grows into a mountain and then fills the entire earth. So just like all the prophets, Daniel sees that everybody must get stoned. And it's not only Daniel that sees the stone. Zechariah sees the stone, but with seven eyes, like the seven eyes of, of the lamb in the Revelation. Isaiah sees the stone and says, the Lord of hosts will become a sanctuary, a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling. And then he prophesies, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have laid in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He who believes will not be in haste. That means not be in a panic. And, 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 and what do we do when we're a panic? That's what usually makes us do what? Look for scapegoats and throw stones. Fear and panic. Paul, Peter, and Jesus all quote Isaiah regarding the stone. But to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus adds this line. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, they will be crushed. Peter writes, come to him to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious, and like living stones, be built into a spiritual house. That's a temple. Then Peter quotes Isaiah. Paul quotes Isaiah and adds that there is no foundation other than Jesus, the stone. See, that's kind of cool. So just like all the prophets, Daniel sees that everybody gets stoned, and yet it seems that no one will be all alone. Daniel chapter 7, in a dream, he sees all the beastly kingdoms destroyed, and then he sees the Ancient of Days, that'd be like God the Father, right? He sees the Ancient of Days give a kingdom to the Son of Man. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you get the picture? The stone destroys everyone, and then it becomes the wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in everyone. It literally becomes like the eternal life in everyone, and everyone becomes then a temple, a living temple. The stone is the Son of Man, the foundation of all things. <laughs> now, of course, the prophets didn't understand how all of that could possibly be true. It was a mystery. But they got the picture once the church had become part of the Roman Empire, once the church had become institutionalized, we thought we had contained and explained the mystery, but it seems that we lost the picture. And so we no longer believe the prophets, and we go around looking for stones to stone the scapegoats, find scapegoats. It's all really a bit shocking when you see it. It's like we're blind and don't know what we're doing. Like, like we're blind. I mean, just look at these verses we looked at before, okay? Now, I'm going to put them on the screen. I want you to look at them, but look at them once again. Hosea 1.6. Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Next chapter. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Hosea 2.23, quoted in Romans chapter 9, which most people think is the scariest chapter in the Bible. I think it's totally cool. Ezekiel 3, verse 8. The people of Israel had defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Next verse. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst 
forever. Habakkuk 12, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Next verse, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 66, 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Next verse and last verse in Isaiah, and they, who's they? All flesh shall go out and look on the dead bodies, the corpses of the men who have rebelled, who have transgressed against me, which happens to be everyone, if you pay attention to Isaiah, for their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh, which is all people looking on the corpses of all people. And check this out, Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus was numbered with the rebellers, the transgressors, same word in Hebrew. For Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's our scapegoat. In other words, if you need someone to blame, blame Jesus. And you don't need any other scapegoat. So get the picture. Isaiah is saying that one day in a new body, as a living temple, as a new Jerusalem, we will all look down on our own corpses in the valley of Gehenna, and somehow even that old body of Jesus somehow is numbered with them. We'll all look down on our own corpses in the valley of Gehenna and together praise God because he has delivered us from these bodies of sin and death in which we are now trapped and alone. The immortal worm is holy. God alone has immortality. And the immortal worm, what does it do? It eats flesh, it spins a cocoon, turns into a butterfly and flies away. And the fire, we've talked about that so much, it's divine. Now Zephaniah 3, listen to this. Therefore, wait for me. In other words, don't throw your stones in haste. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision, something's going to be done about this. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Next verse. For at that time, that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. See, the prophets got the picture. Even though they could not explain all of the mystery, and yet to us, according to Paul, the mystery has been revealed. Now, we cannot entirely explain him, but we know his name, Yeshua, God is salvation. Well, anyway, back in John 8, the Pharisees dropped their stones. But by the end of the chapter, they picked them up again in order to stone Jesus. Because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And yet Jesus slips away, and they cannot catch him until Friday, Good Friday, and then they hurl all their stones. So when did the stone, not cut by any human hand, hit the principalities and the powers and the kingdoms of this world? Well, I believe it's the moment that eternity touches time. It's the end of the sixth day and the edge of the eternal seventh day, God's rest. It was Good Friday. It was the moment that the stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious, the foundation stone, the cornerstone, lifted his head and said, it is finished, and delivered up his spirit. And so what's finished? All the kingdoms of this world. All the business of this world, all the principalities and powers of this world, all the games that we play in this 
world, finished by the one who is the end, but also the beginning, in other words, the life eternal. A few years ago, Professor James Karst from NYU wrote a book about finite games and infinite games. It's now making waves, you know, in the business and leadership community, the crowd that watches TED Talks, stuff like that. He argued that finite games are played for the purpose of winning. So you play in order to stop playing. You win, and then you wonder, now why did I, why did I play? Most businesses, not all, but most, I think, are usually a finite game. You play to make the most money, then stop and wonder why you played. Gold watch. Hmm. You win but aren't sure what you won. Politics and religion are often finite games. You win the election and wonder why you played. You build the biggest possible church and don't know what one is. Scapegoating in the blame game. That's a finite game. You kill your scapegoat, win the world, and forfeit your soul. According to Karras, a finite game is a game you play to win and so stop playing. An infinite game is a game you play to never stop so no one wins. Or perhaps everyone constantly loses and everyone constantly wins. To me, an infinite game sounds like a great dance or some children at play, or a wonderful party. If you party to win, you've never actually been to a party. I read about some missionaries in East Asia that set up a croquet game in their yard. Some Negrito Filipino tribesmen saw them and wanted to join in the fun. So the missionaries explained the game and how at a certain point you could knock an opponent's ball off of the course and out of the game. One of the tribesmen looked puzzled and he said, why would you want to do this? And the missionary explained, so that you can win the game. And this little man, clad in only a loincloth, he just shook his head in bewilderment and kept playing. But the tribesmen didn't play like the missionaries played. When, when a tribesman, when a player successfully got through the wickets, the game wasn't over for that player. He would go back and give advice to his friends. It was entirely a team effort until the last and least player got his ball through the last wicket. And only then did they begin to sing and, and dance, shouting, we won, we won, we won. And yet, you see, they were still winning, and in a way, they had been winning the entire time. I think they were winning even while they were playing a finite game. They were playing the infinite game in a finite world. So is love a finite game? that you can win by beating your neighbor? Or is love an infinite game that you can begin to play even in this finite world? Here's another way to ask the question. Is life a finite game that you can win and so stop playing? <laughs> like you die. Or is life infinite and eternal wherein you continually lose your soul and find it? Lose yourself and find yourself dancing. Sacrifice yourself and find yourself risen from the dead and sacrificing and rising and sacrificing and rising almost like a dance. The, see, the stone that hit this world on Good Friday is the end of all our finite games because it's the presence of the infinite game. There really isn't a game. A better name for it would be reality or the judgment of God or eternal life. Many persons in one substance in the great dance called love. And so people listen to stuff like this and they go, okay, 
Does anyone lose? Does anything lose? Yes. Death loses. Lies lose. Darkness loses. Hades loses. Divisions lose. The accuser loses. Evil loses. And then we will know, we will then know what it is evil. We will know what evil is, but constantly choose the good in freedom. And that's the infinite game. This is the infinite game. He, the stone, took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. So why do we come here each week? Or even watch online and have communion at home online. Why do we come to this table each week? Isn't it to drop our stones and begin to worship? To stop playing finite games and to begin to live an eternal life? Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. And so you drop your stone. Or maybe you, you, you pick it up. Maybe, maybe you throw it at him because you realize that when he said that, he just insulted your ego. And after all, he's the one that made you in the first place, you, so, you, so you throw it at him. And he lifts his head and he cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. They don't understand the game that they're playing. It is finished. And he delivers up his spirit. You die with him and rise with him singing, we win, we win, we win, we win, we win. And all our stones, what happens to all our stones? They fall at the base of the tree. And there on the foundation stone, they're built into a temple that is a city and a bride with infinite and eternal life, even in this finite and temporal world. Several years ago, my wife, you know, with, she said to me, Peter, Jesus wants us to place 12 stones at the foot of the cross. It's, it's an Ebenezer. Ebenezer uh, in Hebrew means stone of help. Eben, stone, nazer, help. Jesus is our helper. We're his bride. And a, and a pile of stones helps us to remember who he is, who we are, and what it is that, that we do. So as you come to the table this morning, either down here to get the little sanitary cops or whatever, or you do it on home, as you come to the table, I want you to bring a stone. Perhaps the stone is labeled for Republicans. <laughs> or maybe it's labeled for Democrats. For socialists. Or maybe for fascists. Maybe it's labeled for prostitutes. Or maybe for those that commit systemic social injustices. Or maybe it just has the name of your ex-wife. Ex-husband. Picture the stone. You know what it is. And as you come to the table... Let it drop. And you see, it's with these stones that Jesus builds his church. 
not an institution of this finite world, but an outpost of the infinite kingdom of God, his sanctuary. Amen. So, Lord God, we confess to you that we actually thought you were playing our finite games, but you're the infinite dance. You are eternal life and relentless love. And so, Lord God, we surrender our judgments to your judgment, your grace, so that, Lord God, when our bodies die, we could get right on to the singing. We could just keep singing and wouldn't be stuck here in this finite game. If you feel like you're stuck in the finite game right now, maybe you could just say to Jesus, say, you know, I don't want to play this game anymore. <laughs> and he looks at you and says, good, you're forgiven. That's the infinite game. Now go and sin no more. Amen. Now, people always want practical application points, but I hope I don't need to spell that out for you. Just look at this world. Very few people are playing the infinite game. Maybe bits and pieces here and there. But you see, the infinite game really is infinite. It will fill the whole earth. And that's pretty good news. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. May you, may you drop your stones and may you be filled. Um, may, you, may you get stoned <laughs> on the spirit of relentless love. In Jesus' name, amen.